Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today David George Moore. He's a writer and commentator whose books include The Last Men's Book You'll Ever Need and Pooping Elephants, uh, Mowing Weeds, What Business Gurus Fail to Tell You. Uh, his new book is Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians. Welcome Mr. Moore. Uh, thanks, Mark. Great to be with you again. All right. Now, you, 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 you say that uh, Christians often seem uninterested in history, sort of a deep feel and sense of the past. Why, why this inattentiveness to the historical past? I think there's a number of feeder streams, and certainly one of the problems we have in the late, late modern American era, which we're now a part uh, thus my title, Stuck in the Present, is the probably the vast majority, but I'll be more uh, modest and say many uh, people, including Christians, mainly are trying to figure out the present, or even exclusively trying to figure out the present, by checking in with social media and cable news. And so they're basically trying to figure out the present by the present. And the longer view is desperately needed, but yet most people, one of the feeder streams, I think, Mark, to your question, the nub of it anyway, is that I think a lot of people had some probably pretty poor history teachers, you know, in junior high and high school. And so the stereotypical, which, you know, stereotypes exist usually because they emerge from things that are somewhat common, the stereotype of the coach who taught history and was as bored as, as uh, the students were by it. And it was just kind of seemed like a bunch of nameless, irrelevant people with a bunch of dates affixed and like, what's the point? And so I think that's burned a lot of people early. And I'm finding that I'm having to do, which the book is certainly geared for doing, have to do a lot of motivation and persuasion to get Christians even to see that the Christian faith is anchored in a heck of a lot of history. Uh, Jesus coming into time and space is anchored in history. Unfolding of events, redemptively historical in nature, successive events. Um, and yet I'm having to do an immense amount of persuasion because I think there's a lot of reasons why we're at this point where people are picking up the latest conspiracy theory on social media and think that's true and don't know much about maybe even World War One or World War Two and how propaganda was used and would do a much better job being able to ferret out truth from fiction by having a longer view. So there, there's a bunch of reasons 
the head to heart dichotomy that I deal with, but there's a lot of different places we could go. But, um, you, you know, one thing I deeply regret is seeing young people without, or even older people, without historical knowledge, because historical knowledge, Matthew Arnold said this 150 years ago, uh, historical knowledge gives you a kind of foundation for judging the present. As Arnold put it, you're not so buffeted by the winds of fashion and trends and current events and everything's changing so fast that the longer picture, going back centuries and having you know the great works in your head, they just give you a, a firmer sense of what matters and what doesn't matter, what is real and what isn't real. It it uh, it puts you on more solid ground, uh, and and uh, the confusions of today, the restlessness, the anxiety that we see. I think historical knowledge would help. Do you? Absolutely. And I saw that you had interviewed uh, Benjamin Story recently. Uh, I'm about to get his book. Uh, he and his wife's book that looks terrific. And of course, they're using as interlocutors people like Pascal and Tocqueville and others to kind of get solid reference points, as you're saying, uh, to kind of figure out and sift through what's going on in the present moment. And that's why that, you know, that, that Lewis essay that really famous on the reading of old books is so helpful. And yet many people don't heed his advice about saying that we need, uh, to go to other places either that are different than us, very different cultures, which become from travel, or we can travel by reading older books because they made their own mistakes, but they didn't make our mistakes. So our frenetic sense of time, our sense of efficiency, our sense of faster is better, our sense of multitasking, all these kind of things are late modern, almost virtues now, and being a workaholic being a virtue. And it's helpful to see other people that we can look to and really admire and see uh, wonderful character traits in them and say, wow, maybe I'm the one who's screwed up in this particular area. They might, We might be able to assess that they were screwed up in certain areas, but they certainly provide a check. And without that sense, without that reference point, we are left really kind of with the shifting fans of, of the present. And we went through the San Francisco earthquake in 1989, which was dubbed that, but it's epicenter was really um, about 40, 50 miles away from San Francisco. Um, and we were coming back from our, our uh, student ministry at Stanford University. And I remember it was rush hours, 504, I believe, or 503. And, you know, wall-to-wall traffic, everyone stops. Uh, I felt like all our tires had blown and they were going east and west. It was very bizarre. And, you know, you quickly realize you're in an earthquake, but you're just disoriented because everything's moving. And to get my bearings, I looked off to the hotel or the motel that was down the street from our apartment, figuring that that would be my solid point because I was getting very busy. It was an undulating uh, earthquake, 7.1. And as I looked at the motel mark, it was moving. And so I couldn't find a reference point. And when I turned on our street, I saw a young boy bringing back his bike, his mangled bike, his bloody knees, and and just looked totally disoriented. 
And that's the picture. That's really an apt picture for where I think most people are at in the modern era is disorientation and conspiracy theories and fear. And uh, without those reference points from the past, we really don't have that stability or that sanity to kind of uh, give a hat tip to Chesterton. Um, You know, he said that the reason one of the re- to your original question, you know, one of the reasons maybe why a lot of us don't like history is Chesterton said it gave us real models of real people who already have accomplished virtuous things. And we have to match our own lives against them, which makes us uncomfortable because they might outshine us. So Chesterton said we're a lot more comfortable living in the present and then projecting how courageous and great we'll be in the future, because looking back is threatening. And so, uh, yeah, without those reference points, we're just going to keep, and I see this with a lot of people, just kind of very prone to the latest, is the greatest, and conspiracy theory, et cetera. You know, one often hears progressives speaking this way, we're so much better than they than people used to be. We're the ones. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. Yes, <laughs> That's right. All right. You you say your book amounts to an approach. Is it a practical plan? It, it is. What I'm trying to do in the book is I'm trying to provide both, you know, kind of motivation and strategies for learning generally, as well as specifically how to understand history well and how to do history, how to read and engage history responsibly, how do you know that a certain account by a certain writer is responsible versus maybe something that, you know, a writer is using history kind of as a wax nose to form and fashion it for what they want uh, to happen politically or culturally or whatever it is. So, uh, but it does provide some real handholds and places where people can kind of uh, get their bearings. Uh, I think one thing, Mark, is, you know, I talk in the book that we're, we're being deluged with information and the cable news stations, the social media uh, that we're getting, uh, that a lot of people are getting is just basically, you know, just throwing all this information Let's say it's all relatively true and legit, but that doesn't make it equally important. You know, Paris Hilton may be doing some latest outrage, but that's not as important as the Syrian refugee crisis. And, you know, Neil Postman talked about this 35, 36 years ago and amusing herself to death. That So I'm trying to say, what do we do when, to coin a term, there's the democratization of data it's equally hitting us at the same time. How do we ferret through and say, I need to be more literate in these areas, and that will help me discern and be wiser in the way that I live? It, it really amounts to a reading plan when you, when mm-hmm. you, when you get down to it in Congress. Yeah. Is, it, is, it, uh, is it especially helpful for, for religious leaders? I think it's it's helpful for yeah for uh, religious leaders, religious followers, if we can say that. Um, uh, yeah, I think for all kinds of, of folks, and certainly the people that are leading, because sadly, you know, I mentioned this in the book too. I I you know have a lot of pastor friends, and uh, my best friends that are pastors do read 
very thoughtfully, but I've certainly engaged a lot of other uh, ministers outside my closest orbit, and, you know, I'll kind of try to sometimes uh, noodle around and find out what they're reading, and rarely it's robust books of history. I mean, that's just really, really rare. So I think if leaders, you know, uh, pastors, clergy, whatever, are not reading and appreciating history, how much is that going to translate to congregations and churches? It certainly is by going, I don't really need this stuff. It's just impractical and irrelevant, and I just need to check out the latest post and the outrage du jour and kind of move on with my life. So. Yeah, you know, was there a point, or maybe I should say, at what point did you begin to regret the disappearance of books in in the hands of the young? Um, I don't know. I can't recall a certain time where that was the case. I think what I will say that's kind of a corollary, maybe to the question that you're asking, maybe not. Um, but I've noticed, Mark. And, and I teach mostly in the places I teach, I'd say predominantly college educated, at least have an undergraduate degree, sometimes graduate degrees. And I've noticed a precipitous loss in the ability to read English well. So I'll be doing a Bible study and I'll point out a verse that's commonly taken out of context. And I'll say, you know, this isn't that baffling. Just look at the context of this particular text we're looking at, and you'll see from some of the previous verses or some of the immediately following verses that this popular interpretation of this verse cannot be true. And the clues are all like, it's not, it's not a conundrum. It's pretty obvious what, what's going on, why, why the popular interpretation is bad. And yet a lot of people struggle. And I did start noticing that about five, 10 years ago. And I, I certainly read a lot of accounts of even writers admitting, you know, Philip Yancey had a famous uh, piece about a year or two ago, um, you know, the uber popular, very literate uh, Christian writer talking about that he used to just be able to sit with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy for many, many hours and be totally enthralled. And he just confessed that his ability to do that is, has receded and, and he struggles. So I'm, yeah, I have certainly noticed a reduction, you know, in people's ability to read carefully. And when that, certainly social media is a toxic drug that has certainly uh, done a lot to uh, to hurt that. So when that was and when I was aware of it, I don't know. But I, I do know that on the reading side, I've been kind of shocked the last five to eight years how poorly a lot of Americans read. You speak of learning, quote, by the heart as well as learning by the head. What's the distinction there? Well, the dichotomy, the head-heart dichotomy is the popular dichotomy that a lot of people understand learning by. They might say, I'm not a very cerebral person. I've never been a good student. I've always had hard times concentrating. I'm not a gifted teacher. I'm not a I'm not a head person. I'm a heart person. I like to live out the Christian faith. I like to do things. I like to be activistic or engaged or whatever. Um, 
And my little mini survey in the book, kind of going back to the Puritans to the modern day, of showing that the head-heart dichotomy was not held by early Christian leaders. Uh, what they understood translated to what they did, which motivated them to go deeper in what they understood, which motivated them to go further out and take steps of faith in what they did. And nor does it fit with Scripture. You know, one of the most popular um, things that you hear a lot, and I've heard it, I want to say at least a hundred times. Uh, it might be more than that, but um, where we drive, we drive a, a pretty significant wedge between knowledge and wisdom, and we think we're getting it from the Bible, namely the Book of Proverbs, and you know the old illustration of like, gosh, I know some really knowledgeable guys with two or three PhDs who are not nearly as wise as my grandmother who dropped out of school because she had to in the fifth grade. And everyone nods their head like, yeah, that shows that wisdom's more important than knowledge. Well, that may be true. You can find, you know, dropouts from fifth grade, and I certainly can think of some that are wiser than, you know, people with double PhDs or triple PhDs. But that doesn't mean that knowledge is not really tied directly to wisdom. And we even see this like, I think I use the example of me with uh, a car mechanic. I know a little, I know a little bit about cars, but not a lot. And so I'm vulnerable to making an unwise decision because I don't know what I don't know. And so an unscrupulous mechanic can take advantage of my limited knowledge. And so I think we've very much uh, in the modern era positioned those against each other as antagonists. Like I, you know, I know a bunch of heady guys that don't do anything with their faith. It's like, well, that doesn't mean that knowledge is unimportant. It just means that they've perverted the role of knowledge leading to greater wisdom and and greater wisdom giving a desire for knowledge. And you see this right out of Proverbs, which is interesting that the increase of knowledge is inextricably tied to the inex- to the uh, increase in, in wisdom. And so they're very tethered, almost like obverse and reverse of the same coin, to use another analogy. Um, so knowledge, growth and knowledge does not ensure that one will be wise, but growth and knowledge at least gives the capacity to make wiser decisions. So we've, we've really missed it uh, badly on that point. Um, and there's a lot of fallout as a result. A lot of Christians are not very wise in communicating the Christian faith. Uh, they may be really activistic and doing some edgy things, but they're not very thoughtful in the way they're communicating the Christian faith. So it's a big problem. You'd like the idea that C.S. Lewis formed of, quote, chronological snobbery. Well, what is that? Well, Chronological Snobbery talks about and Surprised by Joy, you know, which is a book about his pilgrimage to faith. Um, and um, he says that he realized that he started privileging uh, more recent modern thinkers, writers, and he developed this bias, this negative bias to the older people that they were antiquated, irrelevant unimportant, they were bigoted, they didn't know what they were talking about, the really enlightened people, and to use kind of the 
enlightened sense of even the enlightenment on the other side of the enlightenment the modern era we know better we have more insight we're more clever we're more wise we have more insight so he realized that he had been doing that and it was just a chronological snobbery it was the coinage you know they gave to that idea that the privileging of the latest is the greatest and um and he realized that he had to disabuse himself of that notion because it was just it was just wrong. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. In contrast to that, you highlight the necessity of humility when one does historical study. Do you think historical study actually plants humility in you, whether you really want it or not? I think it can if it's done right. Um, all good historians, as you know, will say if you're if you're really seeking to understand the past on its own terms not on your terms, not on trying to gain some kind of talking points that fit already with your uh, narrative of the world, kind of for confirmation bias, as we call it. But if you're going back to the past, and you're kind of with open hands and open heart and head and saying, I want to learn and appreciate the strangeness of the past and allow that to inform me. And there's that supple teachability and willingness to submit, then yes, it, it is a great boon to humility. But there are some uh, that are very popular that use history, and, 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 and use is really a good idea. There's a utilitarian, selfish, like, I'm going to find things that I can kind of contort into my own uh, presuppositions. I don't want to be corrected. I basically have a view of the world, whatever it is, and I don't want it to change. And so I'm going to cherry pick or I'm going to twist what this event uh, was or this person to fit my own uh, already established notions of the world. That's That doesn't fuel humility. That fuels obviously pride and, and just a terribly misguided notion of what great history can do. You, you actually call learning uh, spiritual as well as painful. Uh, mm-hmm. when, what, what, what makes learning get beyond sort of scientific inquiry become, to become a, have a spiritual dimension? Well, it's interesting that, you know, like, and, and Christians have a great advantage on this because our primary text, the Bible, makes it clear that God is very interested uh, in history. He creates time and space. He uh, loves to, uh, obviously, he's the key actor in the unfolding of redemptive history. 
And uh, the more that we can avail ourselves of, you know, Psalm 111 talks about this, understanding the past and what has happened with uh, Christians that have lived nobly and wisely. I mean, take someone like Athanasius, 4th century, who was key in the early uh, Nicene Council in 325 for really helping the church hammer out that Jesus is fully man and fully God. He was brave. He was clear. He was just really impressive in so many different ways, exiled five different times. Um, and his view, quote unquote, his view, uh, which he believed came from scripture, uh, became the view that the Orthodox Christian church throughout the world now holds as the right view. Um, you know, knowing about him, and a lot of, by the way, a lot of Christians don't know about Athanasius, which is amazing, um, but um, knowing about Athanasius is a great encouragement spiritually, because you can ask yourself, wow, Lord, what does greater clarity about things that I really can be clear about from the Word of God how does that translate to courageous living and having convictions and character and that sort of thing? Um, so that's a huge help for uh, living wisely or, you know, a spiritual development or formation, as I talk about in the book. You single out discernment as a special virtue. Is, is one of the virtues of discernment precisely that ability to filter out from the present uh, the transient the, the unimportant, uh, and, and to judge it, judge it accordingly and not waste your time. Yes. I mean, in a word, yes, for sure. I mean, some of the listeners will certainly recognize, uh, a name like Thomas Sowell. Um, you know, I mean, when you have really incisive thinkers like Sowell, you just have the sense of like, they have spent most of their life really thinking and reading the best things. So when they speak, it just seems, as, as the word obviously suggests, the incisive word, it just cuts through kind of all the junk and gets to a point, and they make a point, and everyone hears it and says, wow, that's brilliant or wise. And, and someone like Sol, as you as you well know, I mean, even people from the left will say, well, he, I don't always necessarily agree with him, but he really makes me think. So, yes, I think it's a, it's a significant help for discernment. And man, do we ever need discernment in our day? I mean, Indeed. It's just a chaotic, confused time. You, you lay out several principles in, in the book. Why don't you just review a few of those? What is principle number one? Well, principle number one is uh, you're talking about the last chapter. Yes, yes. As far as the humility and stuff, and I've got these these uh, different principles that I think are really helpful uh, when we're in uh, times of maybe uh, a conflict with someone else or a really somewhat heated uh, discussion or debate. And I think it's probably of the four, maybe one of the most common that is uh, misapplied and not understood as well as it should or appreciated, and that is that we may not understand the other person's 
position as well as we think we do. And so we kind of, uh, you know, jump the proverbial gun. And, and uh, I don't mention in the book, certainly uh, uh, Mill talks about this in On Liberty, kind of this idea of really understanding uh, the strengths of your opponent's view and really doing the work, the requisite work to really not portray kind of like uh, a caricature and just immediately knock it down. Like, gosh, how stupid is this? You know, uh, someone wants to tear down the, the border wall, let's say, take a hot button issue. And, you know, how dumb is this? We're just going to have and, and, and just kind of paint the weakest, worst parts of the argument rather than the strongest one. So knowing the other side. Very good. What is principle number two? Well, um, it it then kind of turns it on us. <laughs> and that is uh, how well we understand our own position. And, um, I mean, you know this, you probably did some debate uh, or certainly have monitored some debate as a former English professor. Um, you know, the most secure in any debate are the people that really, really know their stuff. Right. And they're really ready uh, for whatever question they've, they've done the homework and they understand their own view. And I think these obviously are all kind of related that if we really know the other side, well, that necessarily means in that process, we've been kind of taking ourselves hopefully to the woodshed intellectually and going, now, Dave, how well do you really understand this issue? You're rather glib, and and I think the better we are with words, the, the quicker we are on our feet, more comfortable with uh, forming and fashioning and saying things, um, the more we can rely on that rather than doing the hard work of knowing what we're talking about. Um, I've certainly observed that, and I try to check that on myself too, but I've certainly observed that, Mark, with people that have a lot of facility uh, verbally. Um, as I'm listening to them sometimes on a subject, I'm thinking, well, wow, they're really leaning on their giftedness speaking because their arguments aren't great, but I'm not sure most people are picking that up. They're really listening to how he's saying what he's saying, but we need to really know our own position well as, as along with knowing the other side. So that would be principle two. All right, last question. Uh, you're talking to a parent of a 14-year-old who just doesn't give a darn about history. How does that parent, what would you tell that parent? says, how do I get my, my child to get interested in reading a little more history? Yeah. Um, What's your advice? confinement in in a closet um uh spanking, having no. food under the door no, yeah. no spanking okay um, uh but yeah no i i think you know and curse all the um polling if you will or all the surveys show this that um your kid may be a diligent reader if you're not but your kid has a big leg up if he or she sees mom and dad reading and reading well. Um, and if they're in a house with books, you know, when I go, 
into a lot of homes. And, and I, I did used to do this a lot as a pastor in the, in the, when I was pastor in the 90s. When people invite us over for a meal, I try to just kind of snoop around a little bit without looking like I was snooping around. But I was always asking myself, so where are the books? Where are the books? You know? And it was the rare home that had a serious library with serious books in it. it really, when this is in the 90s, 93 to 98. So I'd say one is, mom, dad, are you serious readers? Are you asking your son or daughter? I used to teach in a very elite prep school here in, in uh, college prep school here in Austin. And the parents were like thrilled that their kids were learning Latin, et cetera. But I had juniors and seniors and one girl came to me one time before class started and said, Mr. Moore, my parents really want me to work hard at my Latin paradigms. When I come home, uh, my mom's reading Glamour magazine. I'd say, if you want to, you know, basically do that, uh, that kind of hypocrisy is going to dishearten a lot of kids. And the kids that are naturally inclined intellectually may just kind of react and go, my parents are stupid. I'm going to be a learner because they're, they're really missing out, but that's the rare kids. So I'd say one is parents need to have uh, the home be an atmosphere where there's books and serious reading. And the other thing is, and we did this uh, growing up, did both. We have a large library and we have, uh, we have a lot of conversations over meals about substantial issues. And that and substantial doesn't mean boring or impractical it means important and engaging and interesting. And our sons uh, both grew up with that. They're both very interested in learning and eager to learn. Um, one of them's off to law school uh, in the fall and the other one's an accountant, but not kind of your stereotypical accountant as you might think about not interested in ideas and stuff. And so I think that's those two things are really potent things and is to have parents that are modeling it both in what they're reading and what they're talking about. And that's pretty rare, honestly. Um, I just did an interview with uh, the Society of Classical Learning executive director, and, you know, he's kind of got his pulse on hundreds of schools, Christian schools across the land. And a lot of the kids are getting great education but the parents have abdicated the learning to the teachers doing it with their son or daughter, but they themselves are not doing much. They're not really engaged. And that's, that's really disheartening. The book is Stuck in the Presence, and Stuck in the Present, How History Frees and Forms Christians. Thank you, David. Thanks, Mark. Great being with you again. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.